So uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Psalms. And the, we, the past two weeks, we looked at Psalm 1 and 2, and they, they sort of serve as the introduction to the overall book of Psalms. And really, those two Psalms are much more optimistic in tone. So Psalm 1 celebrates the blessing that comes when, when we delight in God's word and we are shaped by God's word. Psalm 2 talks about the blessing of following this great king that God is going to send, and that king is going to defeat all the evil in the world and gather the nations. And so there's this great celebratory tone in the first two Psalms. When we get to Psalm 3, the tone changes. Psalm 3 is a lament. It's a cry for help in the midst of pain. See, that great kingly figure in Psalm 2 that we we saw was initially pointed to King David. That king, that great figure, is in the midst of pain and sorrow. He's being opposed. As we read in the first line of the psalm, he says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So David wrote this psalm under the painful circumstances of being on the run from his son who was trying to kill him and take his throne. So I want to to talk just a little bit about sort of the background there, give you an idea of what was going on to help you understand some of the language that David is expressing in Psalm 3. If you want more detail, this is going to be a very brief overview. If you want more detail, I encourage you to read 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 19. So Absalom is David's third son. David's first son is a man named Amnon. And what we read in scripture is that Amnon was obsessed with his half-sister, Tamar. And 2 Samuel 13 says that Amnon was so obsessed with her that he would would experience pain in his stomach. And so Amnon plots to get Tamar alone. And when he does, he takes advantage of her. And the assault that he inflicts on her causes him to, to then view Tamar with disgust. So he sexually assaults her, and then it says he actually hated her with a stronger hate with which he, quote-unquote, loved her. So the tables completely turn. After he does this disgusting act on his half-sister, he discards her, throws her away. Tamar was the full-blooded sister of Absalom. And so Absalom is enraged because he loves his sister dearly, And he waits and he plots for two years. And he's eventually able to kill Amnon. He has Amnon killed. Well, because Amnon is the oldest, he's also the heir. And so for him to kill Amnon, it's not only an act of murder, it's actually an act of political treason. So Absalom goes on the run. He goes on the run for two years. Eventually, David invites him back saying, nothing is going to happen to you. No one's going to kill you. So he comes back. But it is another two, was it three years until David will actually see his son. And so when they finally meet after all this time, there really isn't a strong reconciliation. They sort of just like, okay, you're here. I'm not going to kill you. You're all right. But we're in the same city. But there's really not this uh, rejoicing and reconciliation. And unhappy with his father, Absalom begins to plot David's overthrow. You can imagine after all of these years of just seething, being on the run for several years, and being back in Jerusalem for several years, and then just seeing the way that this father responded, he begins to turn against his dad. And then Absalom, through the, the strength of his personality, also says he's a very attractive man, so he uses his charismatic personality and his position. He begins to turn the people against David. He begins to turn even some key leaders against David. And it gets so bad that David has to run. 
And so he takes those who are still loyal to him and he flees Jerusalem and goes on the run from Absalom. And so here we have David, this great anointed king, and his oldest son rapes one of his daughters, only to have another son kill that oldest son and then turn on him. And we think soap operas have a lot of family drama and dysfunction. David's family was a mess. So in one sense, we see that David is caught up in the betrayal and the sin of his kids. Two of his three oldest sons are obviously not godly faithful men. They're treacherous, they're self-indulgent, they're selfish. They use their power to take what they want rather than to serve. In many ways, they are so unlike their father. Because for the most part, we see that, in, that David used his position and his power to bless others, to serve others. He used his, his power and his authority and his, his gifting so that the nation may thrive. So, so we see this great contrast between Amnon and Absalom and David. However, David is not completely without guilt here. See, David sowed the seeds to the own, his own, the own dysfunction in his family. See, sometime after Amnon and Absalom and Tamar were born, David sees a woman that's not his wife. And he goes to her and he, and he has sex with her. And then because he wants to be with this woman and he actually impregnates this woman, he has this woman's husband killed. And so David not only takes what doesn't belong to him, he has the husband murdered. And then also after Tamar has been sexually assaulted, it says that David was angry, but he doesn't really do anything. He he leaves it to Absalom to take care of his daughter. And so David, in many ways, neglects and and really sort of goes passive in this horrific sin. And so what we see here is that not only is David being attacked and sinned against, there's also his own sin at play. So I want to be very clear. Like, it is absolutely not David's fault that Absalom is trying to take his throne. That is just wrong, full stop. But there is his sin in this dynamic. And so there's an interplay that is going on, that is sort of the the subtext of Psalm 3. And so this is what Psalm 3 invites us into. One of the most painful and difficult and confusing dynamics in life. Facing the sin and opposition and sometimes betrayal of others while also facing the weight of the ways our own sin has contributed to the problem. Psalm 3 invites us into this dynamic of being a sinned against sinner. And this is a tough, difficult, painful dynamic to live in. And really, the, the, the next several psalms that we are going to look at all speak to this dynamic. And so in many ways, I'm just going to introduce some themes that we're going to see carried out through the next several weeks. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through this psalm and show how it gives voice to both our pain and confusion, but also shapes us in hope and trust and peace in the Lord. And so I I want us to understand that as painful as people's sin can be, as confusing as circumstances can be, there's always hope. There is always hope in the Lord, no matter how bad sin gets. So the promise of this psalm is that you can know peace. You can know freedom, even in the midst of sin. 
So let's first reflect a little bit here on the pain of being sinned against. See, Psalm 3 opens with a lament in verses 1 and 2. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So here's David being utterly honest about his pain. He's pouring out his heart to God. And this is part of the language we have for our spiritual formation. Like God gives us language to cry out in pain. Do do you know this? Do you feel the freedom to cry out to God in the midst of pain? When, When you're being sinned against, do you feel the freedom to cry out to God in that pain? Because here's what happens. Too often, and, and I don't entirely know where we get this message, but too often what we will do is we'll think the spiritual thing to do is just have it all together. The spiritual thing to do is sort of just bury my pain and, and be tough about it and not let people's sin affect me. Where do we get that idea? I don't know. Not from Scripture. See, if if we believe that the spiritual thing to do is to just sort of shut off and kind of reach this emotional Zen point when people sin against us, look, that's Buddhism, not Christianity. God's word gives us language. God's word says, hey, when people sin against you, it's all right to be angry. It's all right to hurt. It's all right to cry out to God. Don't, Don't confuse stoicism and burying pain and self-sufficiency with spiritual maturity. Because being sinned against hurts. It hurts. Like for David, the people turning on him were near and dear to his heart. They were the people of Israel that he loved and gave his life to lead and protect. They were trusted advisors. They were men that he had fought wars with. It was his very son who was leading the rebellion. These people were close to his heart. And when those are the people turning on you and sinning against you, that hurts particularly badly. And I know many of you in this room, you face some of those scars. You face the pain of having been been sinned against by people that are close to you. You face the pain of those who have lied about you and those who have manipulated and harmed you. Those that have tried to break your trust and use you for their own selfish gain. Some of you have faced intense abuse even. A ton of pain. And now, maybe some of you, it hasn't been maybe that intense. But even if it is just normal everyday life with people that you love and you're around and they sin against you, that still hurts. So Psalm 3 is inviting us, hey, this is painful. And let's be honest about that pain. Let's be real about that pain. But another layer of pain here is the pain of doubt. People were saying of David, there is no salvation for him in God. David, look at your circumstances. Look at how the opinion of the people has changed. It's obvious that God has left you. He isn't going to save you. He isn't blessing you anymore. Can you imagine being David and looking at all the circumstances around him and and this not affecting his faith? Like David is the one who has experienced miraculous deliverance from God. I mean, he's the one that God saved from a nine foot tall killing machine. He's the one that God saved from the armies of of the Philistines and other enemies of God's people. 
He gave David victory after victory after victory. He anointed David king. He established a kingdom that flourished under David's rule. God had blessed David over and over and over again. And now it seemed all of that was crumbling. It's understandable that David could have been doubting whether or not God was still with him. When people started doubting David's character and questioning God's power in his life, David probably could have been thinking, man, God has abandoned me. I messed this up so bad. I probably deserve this. And so I should just sort of let myself be given over to fate. And so it's one thing to feel the pain of being sinned against. It's another thing to feel the weight of your own sin in the midst of circumstances. That adds a bit of confusion. That that can sort of mess with our perspective. It can turn our hearts and so that we are attacking ourselves even when other people are attacking us. And look, for those of you who are spiritually sensitive, those of you that maybe battle guilt and are very, very easily sort of triggered with your guilt, man, the moment things start going bad for you, it's very easy for you to go, man, something's wrong. Like I've done something to mess this up. Can anybody relate to this? Can anybody relate to the pain of doubt in the midst of circumstances? For those of you who are sensitive, maybe it sounds something like this. If I hadn't done this, then I wouldn't be in this mess. If I hadn't sinned in this way, all this bad stuff wouldn't be happening. God wouldn't have allowed this to happen if I had just been more godly and more righteous. Or maybe you've had your sin thrown in your face. Maybe you've had people... That when you sinned, when you messed up, when you did something you shouldn't have done, they go, hey, look, you're getting what you deserve. Yeah, you, you've crossed the line. It's gotten so bad. God's not going to bless you. God's not going to be with you. Like, how can you think that God is with you anymore after what you've done? And then Satan can latch onto that and start to really dig in at the deep levels and cause you to feel like you are terrible and you are worthless and God doesn't love you anymore and his promises aren't true for you anymore. Accusation and pain, both when we are sinned against, but the pain of doubt that we experience. And these are both real. These are both interplaying together. And and it's so hard sometimes to separate one from the other. And so what Psalm 3 invites us into, the question that haunts this psalm is, what are you going to do with the pain? What are you going to do with the pain of people sinning against you? And what are you going to do with the pain of knowing that your sin may be connected in some way? How are you going to make the pain go away? Will you try to make it go away by burying it and playing the super spiritual Christian and pretending like it doesn't affect you? Maybe you'll try to make the pain go away by lashing out in anger and retaliation. Or maybe you're going to try to make the pain go away by working harder and trying to please those people that you have sinned against or may sin against to keep them happy. Or maybe you're going to work yourself to the bone so that people think you're a really, really good person. And so you want to build this reputation so that no one could ever accuse you of anything bad. Or maybe you think, if I just beat myself up enough, if I tell myself I'm a horrible person, if I fall into self-pity, if people see that I'm beating myself up, then maybe that will make the pain go away. Oh, there's so many broken ways that we deal with this pain. So many 
broken things we run to thinking, hey, that's our salvation. That will make things better. But here we are in Psalm 3, being invited into something else, something much greater. God's word is inviting us to be shaped by something other than running to broken and sinful ways of dealing with the pain. Rather than dealing with it on our own, David runs to the Lord. Verses three and four. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. So David was a warrior king. He had seen battle. And so he's using battle imagery here to talk about the way that the Lord was with him. And so a shield was very important on the battlefield. A shield protected you from things like rocks and spears and swords. A a, a warrior without a shield was a warrior who was very vulnerable and at risk. But a warrior also understood the strength of a shield is only as good as the strength of the material in which the shield is made. And so if you have a faulty shield, it really isn't any good. So like a lot of boys growing up, my, my friends and I, my brother and I, like to play games that involve throwing things at each other. So we would throw snowballs at each other in the winter. We would shoot bottle rockets at each other on the 4th of July. We would have BB gun fights. I don't understand why my mom let me do any of this, but this is what we did. And in all of those games, one of the key factors to not getting hurt is finding a good shield. And so we had this old school like metal trash can I'm old enough to remember when we still had those. And whoever could get to that lid first had the best shield available. And so you wanted that lid. And if you didn't have that lid, you sort of had to find whatever you could. Sometimes we found like a piece of plywood. And if it wasn't too big and too heavy, sometimes that could work. But you didn't want to be the guy who had to just kind of pick up a piece of cardboard. Because the cardboard could help a little bit. Like, you know, a few snowballs that we would kind of deflect, and it wasn't actually too bad against bottle rockets. But after it got wet and started disintegrating, or after it took a few shots of the Roman candles, yeah, we shot those too, and it began to sort of burn away and break, that shield was worthless. David understood that he needed a shield that could stand and could hold in the midst of accusation. And he turned to the Lord. So only the Lord could provide the kind of cover and protection when the accusations of the enemy came. And so let me ask you, what is your shield? In the midst of people sinning against you, accusing you, attacking you, what is your shield? How are you protecting yourself? How are you defending yourself? Again, maybe your shield is to throw up a bunch of anger. Like if I get angry enough, that'll protect me. Or maybe you're, you're the kind that just like, I'm going to throw down the shield and I'm just going on the offensive. And so I'm just going to run at people and retaliate and fight back. Who cares about defending myself? You know, a good offense is the best defense kind of mentality. Or maybe you throw up the shield of self-pity. Man, if, if, if I play the victim, if I beat myself up enough, people leave me alone and back off. Or the shield of performance And I think this is the shield that a lot of us love to run to. The shield of performance. If I am good enough, people will leave me alone. If I build up my reputation enough, people won't accuse me and attack me. If I do enough good things for people, they'll never attack me. If I can keep the peace between me and those who tend to accuse and attack and come after me, 
man, that's my defense, that's my protection, that's my shield. Over and over again, we run to pick up shields of our own making. And look, David understood these kinds of shields don't hold. These kinds of shields actually don't protect. Because for David, here was the reality. One, his power, his prestige, his standing, that was removed. The, the, the opinion of other people had changed. He, he, for all the good that he did, he had this whole history of saving Israel in many ways. All the good that he did, and people still turned on him. Shields of his own making were not going to stand. They weren't going to hold. And so he ran to the Lord. And look, this is not to say we shouldn't stand up for ourselves at times and confront when people are attacking and accusing us falsely and sinning against us grievously. But if we're running after shields of our own making, those shields are paper shields, cardboard at best. And here's what happens. If you run to anger as a shield, you're going to become an angry person. If you run to self-pity, you're going to become someone who is shaped as a victim. And there's no victory in that. If you run to performance as your shield, here's what you're going to do. You're going to run around trying to please everybody and trying to perform for everybody, and that's going to wear you out. And when it doesn't work, it's going to frustrate you, and you're going to become angry, and you're going to become maybe full of more self-pity, and you're going to realize that this cycle of trying to perform enough for people to maintain a reputation just doesn't work. And then when people turn on you, even when you've done your best and misinterpret what you're trying to do, but here's what's else. what else is, what will happen to you. The good that you do and the reason that you do good is going to be shallow and superficial and selfish because you're doing good in order to appease people, in order to present an image. You're not doing good for the sake of good. That will hollow out your soul. That, that will not bring depth and beauty to your life. That will not shape you in godliness and faith and peace. This is also why David says of God, you're my glory. You are my shield, but you're also my glory. So the word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod. And this word literally means heavy, weight, substance. So to say that God is glorious means that God is weighty. He has substance to him. There's something profound about who God is that we cannot grasp. And so for David to say, you are my glory, this is what's happening in the midst of the psalm. It's really powerful and beautiful. In the midst of his pain, in the midst of all these accusations and, and attacks, David looks at the Lord and sees that the Lord is glorious and beautiful and good and profound, and it is greater and bigger than any trial, any pain that he's facing. So there's this moment of clarity. God, you're greater than all of this. You're bigger than all of this. You're weightier than all of this. And you're my glory, meaning God I'm not going to try to justify myself. I'm not going to try to perform for people and establish a reputation and let that be my glory. Let that be my shield. Let that be my defense. I'm not going to try to define myself through my own actions. God, I'm going to let you define me. God, I'm going to let your goodness, your promises, your truth, that is what is going to define me. That is what is going to shape my heart. That is what is going to dictate the way I live my life. Not my own agenda, not the agenda of other people. And so God is his glory. 
God is his protector, but God is the one who defines him and shapes him. And this is good news, church. This is good news because it means that in the midst of accusation and attack, you don't have to perform. But when the pain of sin comes, when all that you put your identity in, because it would have been really easy for David to go, look, I'm the king. I'm the warrior king. Look, I took down Goliath. I defeated the Philistines. Look at all the stuff that I have done. That could have been his glory. But that was all being stripped away. And so when that happens for you, when all that you put your identity in is being stripped away, when all the attack and accusation comes, what's going to define you? What's going to define your identity? What's going to be your glory? So David looked to the Lord to be his shield. He looked to the Lord to be his glory. And this is who the Lord is. Oh, hear the tense in these verses. You are a shield about me. David didn't have to wonder if God was going to be his shield. You are. This is active. You are my glory. God is at work in David's life, even in the midst of this pain and accusation and sin, even in light of all the ways that David blew it, God is still active. This is David's hope. This is our hope. God is continually active in the lives of his people. He doesn't wait for you to get it together. He doesn't wait until you've reached a certain level of godliness or only if you mess up in a little certain way. No, no matter how bad it gets, God is your shield, he's your glory. And David took great encouragement from this. He said, you're the lifter of my head. Like, how does your body posture go when you're being attacked, when you're being accused, when you even recognize the shame of your own sin? Well, how does your body begin to react? We go down, right? We look down at the ground. We don't want to look people in the eye because we're so ashamed, God says, in the midst of that, when, when all around me is driving my eyes to the ground, God, you lift my head. It has this beautiful picture of, of the Lord lifting David's head to lock eyes. Look at me, David. Parents, have you ever experienced this with your kids? When they're facing like the weight of their own sin and the shame, or they've blown it? and they know it, and they just feel overwhelmed with shame and guilt. What, what do you want to do? Hey, go do this, and you'll feel better about yourself. No, please, if that's what you do, don't do that. No, you want to lift their head, lock eyes with them, and say, look, I love you. I'm with you. Be encouraged, not because you have to go out and do all these awesome things to make up for the bad, but because I love you. Take courage in the fact knowing you're loved and you're my son, you're my daughter. This is what God is doing with David. David, look me in the eye, look at my face. I love you. You are my son. Look at my face and find encouragement knowing that I am with you. Don't be discouraged. Don't be defeated. Find your joy, find your encouragement in me. And let that encouragement cause you to go and live life, to, to be full of joy, to, be, to, to go and do good for the sake of good, to go and, and have a heart that is soft and responsive to the pain that comes into life. You see, when we're encouraged in the Lord and not our own performance, man, that opens us up. 
It sets us free. It allows us to express pain when we do express pain, but it also gives us a, a sensitivity to living life. And so David is encouraged because it is the Lord who lifts his head. And then David also finds rest. He finds rest as he says in verses five and six, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Like, look, David was being accused. He was being attacked. His throne was being ripped away from him. And he can sleep at night. Wow. (laughs) He can sleep at night. Why? Because he's resting in the Lord. The Lord is his shield. The Lord is his glory. The Lord is his source of encouragement. Look, do you believe that kind of rest is possible? Like, this isn't the rest of one who is just like escaping from the world. This isn't the rest of one who has used drugs and alcohol to just knock him out. This is the rest of one whose soul is at peace because he knows the Lord has him. And he rests. Like, look, this kind of encouragement, this kind of rest breaks you out of self-pity, breaks you out of anger, breaks you out of that performance cycle. And it sets you free. David ran to the Lord and he experienced rest. But, but also, don't miss what he says in verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. You know, David could also rest. David also could take encouragement and find that the Lord was his shield and his glory because he knew God was going to do something about the evil. God cared about what was happening to David. God cares about the injustice and the sin and the attack and the opposition that you face. We talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. God will defeat that evil. God will bring an end to that accusation and attack. The the imagery here, striking, he says, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. So to strike somebody on the cheek is to signal, hey, what you have done is dishonorable. I'm going to dishonor you for doing something dishonorable. I'm going to shame you for doing something shameful. And so this is what God does to his enemies. This is what God does to the wicked. He shows that, hey, you are the one who's dishonorable. You are the one who is shameful. This is a sign of defeat. And then breaking the teeth. So this is an imagery of, so when an animal, its teeth are broken, is a sign of breaking its power and its threat. And so for for God to break the teeth of his enemies, saying you're going to remove their threats. You're going to remove their power. You're going to remove the ability of them to harm me. This is what God does with those who are evil and wicked and would accuse and attack and oppress. He strikes them on the cheek and he breaks their teeth. And David cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me. I want you to do this. And look, this is an okay prayer to pray. We can pray that God, not us, that God would deal with evil, that God would defeat attackers and accusers and oppressors and those who harm us and sin against us. God, bring them down, defeat them, stop all of their sin. And God is either going to do this by redeeming them or judging them. 
But we pray this prayer to give this stuff to the Lord so that we can rest and take encouragement that God is in control. So what we see in verses three through seven is this beautiful picture of running to the Lord and not trying to defend ourselves and take things into our own hands. But if we're honest, man, this sounds good on paper, but it is so hard in real life. Because in life, we want to grab control of all of this, don't we? We want to make self-made shields and self-made glory in order to protect ourselves and maybe, just maybe, bring a sense of rest to our souls. So often, we take these things into our own hands. But Psalm 3 is holding out something so much better. It's a call to rest. It's a call to trust. It's a call to find your identity in something greater. How do we get there? How do we get there if this is so difficult? We get there not by looking at David. Though David in many ways modeled this kind of faith for us. But we don't get there by beholding David as our model. We get there by beholding Christ. We get there by looking to Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished and how Jesus empowers us to do this. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, flip over to 1 Peter 2. So as you're going, so the context of 1 Peter, if you remember when we preached through 1 Peter a few years ago, Christians were being attacked and slandered and sinned against. And so Peter is writing to encourage them. And so he is going to instruct them by pointing to the example of Christ. And here's what he writes in verses 21 through 25 of chapter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus, who was a far greater king than David ever was, also faced incredible accusation. But unlike David, Christ was completely without sin, completely without guilt. All the accusations, all the attacks were unjust, were unfair, were wrong. Yet when he was faced with these attacks, he didn't resort to anger. He he didn't resort to self-pity. He didn't try to prove his accusers wrong. He didn't try to create this crew of defenders who would shout down all the people who were going to accuse them. He even turned down the opportunity to call down a legion of angels and strike people dead. No, he allowed the accusations to come. And what does it say? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He let the Lord be his shield. He entrusted himself to the Lord. And here's the good news for us. What did all of that accomplish? In in Christ allowing the Lord to be his shield, God the Father to be his shield, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, what did that accomplish? Our salvation. You see, when Jesus was accused and when he was attacked, when he was beaten, when he was mocked, when he was hung on a tree, he was bearing our sins in his body. When he was abused and lied about, when he was mistreated, oh, he was setting us free from our sin. See, here's the good news of the gospel. Because look, we all 
are guilty of accusing. We all are guilty of attacking. We all are guilty of inflicting sin on other people. So we, yes, that happens to us and we face the pain of that and we're dealing with that largely in the sermon this morning. But we cannot miss the fact we're all guilty. We all need to be forgiven. We all need to be set free of this before we can even be able to enter in and face accusation and opposition in a godly way, we first must recognize the way we need to be forgiven and set free. And Jesus does that for us, covers all of our sin. But here's also what he does. All the shame that Jesus took, all the accusations, all the abuse that he took, he was taking every attack, every shame, every abuse, every opposition, every sin against you on himself. He's not just setting you free from your own sin. He's setting you free from the effect of other people's sin in your life. This doesn't mean that that's not going to hurt. It doesn't mean that in this life, we're not going to have to work through that. But what it means is that sin against you, the ways that you've been harmed and hurt, that does not have the final word. Those stains do not last. Christ has defeated those for you. There is victory for you in those. And this is the good news of the gospel for us. This is what it means for the Lord to be our shield. It means Jesus defeated those accusations. You don't have to. It means Jesus defeated that attack and that opposition and that sin against you. You don't have to. You don't have to be subject to, you don't have to be beaten down by. You don't have to try to undo with your performance. You don't have to be given over to self-pity. You don't have to retaliate in anger. You can trust the Lord knowing Jesus has defeated all of that. So what does that mean for you? What do you do in response when that sin and accusation comes? Well, what does Psalm 3 tell us to do? Cry out to the Lord. Cry out to God. You see, when, when we give voice to our pain, when we cry out, when we lament to God, this is a step in the right direction. It's a step that orients us to God. It's the language of lament spiritually forms us to trust in God and not take things into our own hands. And so our first step is always cry out to the Lord, run to the Lord, pray to the Lord, go to his word, find comfort and strength in him. If that seems passive, I dare you to try it. It isn't passive. But in those moments, what the Lord is doing is he's shaping you, he's forming you, and he's setting you free so that when you live your life, you live your life in godliness, in peace. You, you can love and serve people even when they harm you. you. You can pursue good to glorify God and see others flourish, not to try to prove something to yourself and build a reputation. You can experience the freedom of walking in that kind of faith and peace and joy. Oh, when you feel that freedom, you know it's different. But that starts by going to the Lord and crying out, you're my shield, you're my glory, lift my head. Jesus, thank you for forgiving my sin. And God, protect me from the accusation of sin of others. Here's what this also means. The fact that Jesus has paid for your sin means you don't have to own what you don't need to own. You can confess what you need to confess because Jesus paid for it, but you don't need to take on false guilt. So Psalm 3 is calling you to freedom. The Lord has, is holding out freedom for you in the midst of being a sinned against sinner. Psalm 3 ends by David declaring in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. 
your blessing be on your people. Like his enemies, those who opposed him, wanted David to completely doubt God's goodness to him. But you know that's more of a statement about God than it is about David? It's saying God doesn't save these kind of people. God isn't with these kind of people. David ends by declaring, no, salvation belongs to the Lord. No matter your sin, no matter the ways you have sinned against other people, no matter the ways that you have attacked and oppressed and opposed and, and done harmful things to other people, like if you turn to Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. God will forgive all sin. He will renew and restore and transform you and give you new life. No matter the ways you have been sinned against, no matter the pain that, it, and the, that has been inflicted on you, God will save you from that. He will heal you from that. He will restore. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Blessing upon his people. David is saying, no, this is who our God is. You try to tell me this is who God is? No, this is who our God is, a God of salvation. And so church, in the midst of being sinned against sinners, this is who our God is. So let us turn to him in faith. Let him be our shield, our glory, and lift our heads so that we may find rest. Amen.